Hey, hey, it's Conrad Thompson from SaveWithConrad.com. Heads up, homeowners, all of a sudden your house is worth more than ever these last few years. But what are we going to do with that newfound equity? No, I'm not suggesting you sell your house or go buy something else. But didn't we all make this decision when we bought a house where we said, hey, someday we'd like to, and one day it would be nice if, maybe it's the dream kitchen, maybe it's an in-ground pool, maybe it's a man cave. But you've got this newfound equity, and I think we should use some of that equity to turn your house into your dream home with no money out of pocket. But even better than that, we're routinely helping folks do this, and they wind up with a cheaper monthly payment. So if you got the dream house you always wanted, with no money out of pocket, and your payments went down, how easy is that? Find out how easy it is to turn your house into your dream home with no money out of pocket right now at SaveWithConrad.com. We can't wait to hear about your projects. Tell us what your dream is. We're going to help you make it happen at SaveWithConrad.com. NMLS number 65084, Equal Housing Lenders. Woo! Welcome to Something to Wrestle With. Bruce Pritchard. Bruce Pritchard. Well, you know. That's not a rib. She pooted. There's no box of gimmicks. Rumor and innuendo. I don't deal in rumor and innuendo. It, it, it. Was he there? I was there. I don't give a shit. <laughs> I ain't scared of shit. I ain't scared of shit. Fuck him. Thank you, Bruce. I love you. Double cheeseburger. Double cheese. Bruce Pritchard. Uh, we had another quick question here. Uh, I, I kind of forgot we mentioned this, but I guess you alluded to it on our Double J episode. There was something about Double J, Jeff Jarrett, and Doink. Any follow-up on that? What I alluded to, and and, and thank you for, for bringing that up, because I even alluded to that when we were talking about it uh, for the polls, um, was Jerry Jarrett. Uh, when Jerry Jarrett was working up at WWE as a consultant doing some different things and felt that he had been undermined by myself and Pat Patterson, that Vince McMahon put Jerry Jarrett in charge of the Saturday morning television show by the name of Mania. So Jerry Jarrett was responsible for a few weeks uh, during his time and during his tenure in the WWF. He was writing Mania. And his first attempt at writing Mania was during a time that uh, Lex Luger and Yokozuna were hot and Undertaker, and, and there, were, there were a lot of hot issues. And, and one of the – we were running three towns, an A town, a B town, a C town. And kind of in the middle of the card in the C towns was a match between Jeff Jarrett and Doink the Clown. Um. Two name guys that were working with each other. We did a little thing with them on TV, but they were um, on the card in the C-Towns. So Jerry took it upon himself to take Mania, the show on Saturday mornings on the USA Network, and take out of six segments, take three segments and devote it to the Doink Double J story. Now, in the big scheme of things, 
you want to focus your attention on on the champion. You want to focus your attention on Brett. You want to focus your attention on Luger. You want to focus your attention on Yoko and Undertaker and the top guys because that's what all of the other uh, shows are doing. And you really want to concentrate on what's on top. So it didn't look good at all for Jeff's dad to take over the writing of WWF mania and for him to be featured very heavily for more than half of the show. And so Vince, um, just happens to watch this damn show. And of course is, was the norm when Vince would be unhappy with something on television that time, he would usually call me and say, what the hell? I say, Hey, I'm not it. You told Pat and I to, not supervise those shows anymore and that Jerry Jarrett was totally in, in charge of those. And I said, I have no idea what he did. I didn't look at it. Didn't watch it. Don't have any feedback for you. Um, nothing. God damn, Bruce, you can't let him bury himself like that. I'm like, I didn't. Well, you know. And so we leave for TV that day and Vince is like, God damn, I got to talk to him. And it was Vince, Pat, myself, and Jerry Jarrett driving to the towns. It's when we were kind of uh, working in the Northeast doing our television tapings. And we stopped at a rest area to uh, go pee-pee, which was during a time that Pat and I would always run. It was, it was a moment we could get away from Vince, from being in a car with him all the time. And Vince decides this is when he's going to take Jerry Jarrett for a walk and talk to him about how he wrote the Mania show. And so Vince and Jerry go, go off and they take a walk and Pat goes off and has a smoke and I go to the bathroom. We come back to the car and Vince and Jerry come walking by and Jerry stays at the car with Pat and I, and Vince goes on to the bathroom and, and Jarrett looks at us as man, I, I have never been yelled at like that in my life. Pat and I looked at each other and said, what, what do you mean? What'd you get yelled at for? He, said, he told me that that show was the worst thing he'd ever seen. He said that it, it'd probably be a good idea if I didn't feature Jeff as much. I said, that's all he said. Uh-huh. I was like, fuck you. I said, goddamn, you didn't get yelled at. You didn't even get a goddamn stern talking to. You want to know what the fuck it's like to get yelled at by the man? Hang around me for more than fucking two hours during the day, and you can see what it's like to get yelled at by the son of a bitch. And he just, Jerry was just so distraught that Vince told him he didn't like the show. Well, you know. The next night on Raw is something you need to go out of your way to see. It's March 24th, 1997. And the interview Brett does here is probably the longest in the history of raw at this point. It's 22 minutes long. Brett apologizes to his fans all over the world for his foul mouth rant the week before. Uh, and then he says, he wrote in his book, then I took a deep breath thinking, here we go. This is it. And Brett delivered, I mean, an amazing promo here. Uh, he says he felt that it's the best one he's ever done. And Sean comes out during it and they have a very intense shoot style promo that people would talk about for months. Uh, and then Brett attacked his knee and put the figure four on him around the ring post, which is a pretty innovative spot at the time. Is this the first time you remember seeing the figure four around the ring post? Yep. And that's all Brett Hart, man. It was sitting out there and wondering about what he could do. And, and we were thinking about if you do it on the floor, he wanted to do something with the chair on the floor or around the steps. And I said, man, you know, for TV, great. We, we can cover it. 
but the audience is not going to be able to see it. And what you wanted to see was Sean sitting up, you know, writhing in pain. So Sean's in the ring. Brett put that on and, and he, I mean, Brett came up with it. That was all 100% him. And, and that's what I mean about the innovative. He would always do something different and unique. Go check this out. March 24th, 1997. It's worth your time to go watch it. It's the start of Brett's legendary heel turn. You know, probably one of the best runs in the history of the business. And, and we're basically in April here and we're only going through the very beginning of November and we're still talking about it 20 years later. So handful of months, but what an impact, uh, the next night on the 25th in Piero in Peoria, they taped her off for the following week. And this is the one and only singles match between Brett and Rocky Maivia, which we talked about on our rock show. Uh, and then we get a heads up that Owen was wrestling bulldog for the European title. When suddenly Brett comes to the ring and breaks him up. He gets on the mic and cuts another amazing promo, putting back the heart foundation, sort of recreating it. Uh, he's looking at Owen and says, look at what they've done to me and you. And then he talks about walking him to school and he says, I love you. And then all these guys are hugging. It's a really cool moment. And, uh, the heart foundation is on the way. Uh, whose idea was it to involve Owen and bulldog in this? This feels like something that, that Brett would have pushed for. Well, it, it was a way, obviously their family, they were already, you know, kind of, you had the heel thing going on. It was natural and everybody can relate to it. Like you said, we're talking about it now. And you remember that moment all these many, many years later, because you could relate to it. And I think people that, that have family, man, you fight, you make up, you break up, you make up. And it was heartfelt and it, it added you know, that, that whole Canadian thing, but this was Brett going out and reconciling with family and it, and it was real to people. They could relate to it. Apparently they had worked out a spot where Michaels was going to super kick Cornette, but Cornette either tripped and fell down and Michael super kicked air, or I guess Michaels felt Cornette double crossed him on the spot. There were problems already between the two stemming from something that apparently happened after the show in San Francisco. Anyway, after they went behind the curtain in Anaheim, Michaels immediately began yelling at Cornette about the spot, and Cornette began yelling back, and it became a really big deal internally. Now, I want to talk about this, Bruce, because it feels like Shawn Michaels was the golden boy and could do no wrong, and Cornette was the office, and he, quote-unquote, should have known better. Would that be Vince's take on this at the time, and, and where did the heat come from on this? I think that there was just bad feelings between, you know, Sean at that time was the difficult boy to work with. That was his perception. And Sean could be difficult. Cornette, old school, didn't like the click, didn't like Sean, didn't like um, a lot of the things that he did. So, you know, Corny was going to not shy away from everything. But, yes, I would say that Vince kind of looked at it as, you know, Sean's a golden boy and Corny, you should have known better. Uh, do you, did you see this match? Did you see the spot? Did you hear about it? I heard about the blow up. I, I did not see, didn't see the argument. Didn't, didn't see the spot to be able to tell you one way or another, what I think might've happened. Have no idea. Um, just heard that Sean and Cornette got into it and it's, that becomes a conversation of corny. What happened? Right. Damn, I'm going to kill the motherfucker. Son of a bitch. Excuse me of shit. I forget more about anything. He'll ever know. Um, 
and just saying, Jim, you got to control yourself and bite your tongue and move on. So that I don't remember it being that big of a deal. Um, it, Meltzer would write the next week. It appears whatever problems there were with Jim Cornette and Shawn Michaels have at least on the surface blown over. Hypothetically speaking, do you think that Jim Cornette knew that Shawn Michaels really enjoyed flowers? Because it feels like if Cornette was looking for a good deal for the heartbreak kid, uh, he would know exactly where to go, right? I go to proflowers.com, motherfucker. It's real simple. But you know what? thing about it is I wouldn't just go and just send Sean something like for his birthday. I like to do it when it's unexpected because predictability is boring and I'm not boring. Surprises are exciting. And Pro Flowers makes it easy for you to surprise someone right now or anytime. It was, it was reported at the end of 1994 in the Observer that IcoPro was sold and is no longer a part of the Titan structure. I don't know when we'll talk about IcoPro again. Give me some uh, good IcoPro stories. Dr. Squat. Fred Hatfield. Um, God, you know, I got there after IcoPro. I got back uh, from my hiatus after IcoPro and the, all that shit had started. The one good thing of IcoPro was the IcoPro protein bars. They were kind of like a bit of honey. They weren't bad, but the rest of that stuff was worse than god awful. Have you ever? Have you ever? I don't like licorice. I don't like black I licorice. Hate, I hate licorice. And if you Thanks. like licorice, unsubscribe from this fucking show right now. I don't even want you as a listener. Yeah, and the the IcoPro drops that you put under your tongue. The best way I could describe them it would be that they tasted like bad black licorice. But I can't think of anything that tastes worse than black licorice other than the IcoPro drops. Wait, wait, wait. I just want you to say the candy one more time. What can't you stand? What type of candy? Black licorice. What the fuck are you laughing at? How do you say it, hillbilly boy? I just love the way you say it. It's my new favorite word for you to pronounce. What is it again? You tell me what word do you want me to pronounce? The word after black. How do you say it? I don't say it. I call I call them shits Twizzlers. Okay, but what is a Twizzler? Red. Red what? I don't know. I'm a red. I'm a hillbilly boy. It's licorice. <laughs> How the fuck do you pronounce it? Do you ever do you ever have some Twizzlers when you go to the theater? It's the theater. I love when you say that too. It makes me very happy. Okay, let's get out of here. Let's talk about um, the Wrestling Observer one more time. Uh, oh, God damn. Are we about done? Yeah, we are. We're wrapping up. Uh, Bruce, considering Brett's contract was expiring over the summer in like June or July, were you guys nervous that there could have been a third man in the pink and black? A little bit, yes. Definitely, because you had guys leaving, obviously Hall and Nash, and Brett was during his off time here, so... He hadn't committed. He did not commit fully to us yet. And he gave every indication that he would, but at the same time, he didn't actually say that he would. So, yeah, there was definitely concern because you didn't trust anybody at this point. Now, for those of you who are keeping score at home, Brett wouldn't show up and re-sign until October, but he had agreed before this to agree to appear in South Africa in September for the WWF. But it is fun to think about what if Brett had followed them, Holland Nash, that is, and joined the NWO in 1996. 
how different do you think the wrestling world would be today if Brett would have went in 96? I mean, it certainly would have looked a lot different. Well, I mean, Hogan probably would have come back to the WWF and the screw job may not have happened. And the Mr. McMahon character may not have happened. What other kind of fallout could there have been had Brett actually went South in 96? Who knows if Steve would have gotten over to the level that he did, who knows again, the Mr. McMahon character to me is as pivotal, pivotal as the Hulk Hogan heel character in the NWO. And people can point, to Holland Nash all they want, making the switch. The tide turned when Hogan joined the NWO and Hogan turned heel. The perfect storm existed at WCW to you know take over and be the new leaders in the industry for quite a while. But it was those pivotal moments that I you know, without McMahon turning heel and actually becoming a character. I don't know that the business would be what it is today. Uh, Shamrock and Rock started fighting, and then Undertaker and Kane come out. Um, eventually, The Rock would pin The Undertaker clean in the middle with The Rock bottom. Um, this is a, a pivotal moment to me because this is at a time when The Undertaker is not losing matches routinely. So for The Rock to get a, a clean win using his finish over The Undertaker, pretty big deal, right? You could see and you could smell what was cooking, man. Rock was red hot and he was on that trajectory going upwards and it was time. And Undertaker had absolutely no problem putting him over because it was the right thing to do. And the the audience that red ring like red 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 ring. Red ring ovation. Red wing ovation. Um Are you they okay? exploded. You just said you could see what the rock is cooking and red rain. Are you okay? Yeah, I'm great. That's good. I'm excited. Why can't I be excited? Take your pills. Hey, uh, around the same time, the rock starts using people's elbow as a finish. And uh, Mick Foley has gone on record several times saying he feels like this is the stupidest move in wrestling history. And this is a guy who put a sock puppet in people's mouth. Did you or anyone else feel that the people's elbows finish was ridiculous and request that it not be a finish to a match. Like, did the Undertaker say, man, you're going to have to hit me with the rock bottom. I'm not laying there for that fucking silly shit. Yes, I thought it was absolutely positively silly. I hated it. Um, I liked it as a spot. Nice ha-ha high spot in the match. I hated it as the finish. That's why... You know, he, he did everything else before it. So the setup and all the other stuff, he did the rock bottom and all that other stuff before he did the people's elbow. But when you look at it as people's elbow, no, that wasn't a finisher, man. Come on. And, uh, but you know what? They fucking popped. They went banana for the people's elbow. I love that you just worked in Pat Patterson. Thank you for that. Uh, the next night on Raw, and man, this is the coming out party for DX. So remember, this is the night after WrestleMania 14, and this is maybe the night. Is this the night, Bruce, that the night after WrestleMania became a big deal? You know, of course, these days, the Raw after WrestleMania is a really big deal. But do you remember that being, you know, WrestleMania 14, 1998, the first time it was a really big deal? Well, it was a big deal because in in this time frame, we really... You know, you say the night after WrestleMania, we didn't have live Raws before this. 
at this time. So, yeah, it really was. It was the era of being live and, and this is the first day of the next year type thing. So that's when our, our new year, that was our new year. Right. Began the day after. So that's pretty much when it started. Well, here the New Age Outlaws would defeat Cactus and Chainsaw in a salad steel cage to regain the World Tag Team titles. And earlier in the night, Sean Waltman returned to the company. Um, he was referred to as the kid on commentary. Of course, most recently he had been in WCW and he cut a, a hell of a promo on Eric Bischoff and Hulk Hogan. He was there as six or six Pac. Uh, here he's going to be back and eventually he'll be called X Pac. Uh, Triple H, X Pac and China actually run out and X Pac hits Cactus with a chair as he's trying to climb out. And then they all come in the ring and all four put the beat down on Funk and Cactus. And the Outlaws get the pin on Cactus after a spike pile driver. And then all four guys climb to the top rope of each corner as the DX music plays. And um, it's highly insinuated here that the New Age Outlaws have also officially joined DX. So with Shawn Michaels out, it's a new era of Degeneration X. Uh, Road Dogg has said that Shawn and Hunter took notice of how they were starting to get over and had personally went to the Outlaws and asked them if they wanted to join uh, and he says that they played hard to get for a few minutes and then went back and said absolutely they would join. And James also said that he and Triple H had actually worked together in WCW all the way back in 93. This is back when uh, Triple H was terrorizing and James was Brian Armstrong. Uh, of course, once upon a time, Bob Armstrong fired Shawn Michaels from Continental Wrestling very early in Shawn's career. And they've actually uh, made a comment of such. On Raw, I think sometime in the summer of 98, you actually hear Sean make mention of that. Uh, how do you remember this association and the night after Raw? It feels a little bit like a, a changing of the guard. With Sean out, Triple H is no longer the lieutenant. He's now in charge. And, you know, all of a sudden, you've got a really new, I mean, even though it's got the same name, it's really a new faction completely with Sean in and the New Age Outlaws there as well. It was a new day, baby. Um, it was a big void losing Sean. Sure. So in order in order to replace him, the thinking was is that we needed a faction, as we've talked about so much. And you had the the tag team in the New Age Outlaws. You had the single in Triple H in China. And then you had your utility guy with X-Pac. So – here was an opportunity to elevate. It's elevating Triple H because Sean's out of the picture and putting these guys in a position where they're either going to make it or they're going to break it. So what's coming up next, of course, is um, you know, a series of matches through March and April where they're all over the country. You know, They do March 31st on Raw. You got the New Age Outlaws and Triple H taking on the Disciples of Apocalypse. But then it's Mayhem in Manchester. They're all through Germany, um, and they're working with the Legion of Doom. They're calling themselves LOD 2000 uh, and being paired with Sonny here after WrestleMania 14. But we get something fun on the April 6th Raw. We see DX walking backstage, and they come across the Disciples of Apocalypse motorcycles. So we see Billy, X-Pac, and Road Dog piss on all three bikes. Uh, and you can hear the P sound, but there's sensors over the top. Uh, this has got to be a Vince Russo idea here, is it not, Bruce? No, it's a Vince McMahon idea. Really? And if you go back and you actually look at that, you will notice that the urine is true urine color. Uh, is this that, is this shoot urine? 
No, no, it, it was it was, it was uh, imitation urine. Working urine. We, working urine. It was working urine. We got it from uh, urine is us, and uh, but it was the right color, and I, I just remember. <laughs> Richie Posner, I love Richie Posner. Richie Posner was the magic man, the the prop guy. He hates word prop, but he was a magic man that did a lot of things. And I remember Richie coming to me and saying, I've uh, I've got the urine, and uh, I just want to make sure that it's the right temperature, and uh, it's going to be on camera, so it should be the proper color. This will definitely read as uh, urine, um, and a little dehydrated, but uh, it'll definitely read on camera as urine. And I'm just looking at him like, um, Richie? I don't think anybody's going to be able to to notice the the temperature of the urine. I don't know that's important on television. Um, when you guys are sitting around the table, does Vince is Vince like demanding urine here? What might that sound like? <laughs> what if they whip it out and they piss on their bikes? <laughs> God damn it, that's good shit. All I want to see is a and goddamn take their time, draw it out like they got a huge unit. And then, and then the urine flows. <laughs> but I want to hear it. I want to hear it. I want to hear it hit the goddamn motorcycle. Tinkle, 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 tinkle. Piss. Ah, oh, damn! I love it. Good shit. Good shit. No, no, I don't want shit. Just piss. Make sure it's the right goddamn temperature too. People will know. They'll know the difference at home. Goddamn it. It's a cold night. There needs to be steam off the urine. God damn, don't be ridiculous, damn it. It's just it's, it's absurd. That's that's just where shit goes too far. <laughs> it's, it's just ridiculous to me, but I, I do hope that somebody makes us a Tinkle Tinkle Piss shirt. Because tinkle think, Tinkle Piss. I think Tinkle Tinkle Piss on, like, a baby's onesie, man, that would be flying off the shelves. <laughs> <laughs> Every, everything we can uh. buy. <laughs> this, this, oh, shit. This sets up the New Age Outlaws and uh, Triple H taking on the DOA in a six-man tag. They'll be made with Tinkle Tinkle Piss. God damn it. Everybody's going to want to go. God damn, remember the time they went Tinkle Tinkle Piss on the bikes? Good shit. Not shit. Don't get, God damn it, don't order any more shit. Triple H gets the win over Chains with a pedigree here, and then DX beats them up with chairs. So not only did they get their Tinkle Tinkle bikes, um, but now they get beat up with chairs as well. Uh, the next week, Owen pins Billy, and later in the show, we see New Age Outlaws, Triple H, and Kane lose to Austin, The Undertaker, and LOD 2000 in about a minute and a half when Austin pinned Dog after the stunner. Sort of interesting here. You guys have them win the tag titles. They just joined DX. They're finally in the main event, a big-time match on Raw, and they lose in a fucking minute and a half? It's awesome. Yeah. You can excuse it. You want to enjoy those drinks on vacation without wasting the next day in bed? Well, Z-Biotics is the $9 travel insurance that you'll actually use. I mean, let's face it. After a long night with drinks, I just don't bounce back the next day like I used to. And now I have to make a choice. I can either have a great night or a great next day. That is until I found Z-Biotics. I absolutely love this product. It's been a game changer in my world and in Bruce's world. You see, Zbiotics Pre-Alcohol Probiotic is the world's first genetically engineered probiotic. It was invented by PhD scientists to tackle the rough mornings after drinking. And here's how it works. When you drink, alcohol gets converted into a toxic byproduct in the gut. It's that byproduct, not dehydration, that's to blame for your next day. And isn't something we've all heard 
Like it feels like everybody says, oh, you just gotta chug a bunch of water. Buddy, that doesn't do it. You see, Z-Biotics produces an enzyme to break down that toxic byproduct and poof, you feel a lot better. It really is designed to work just like your liver, but in your gut where you really need it the most. So here's the steps. You drink Z-Biotics before drinking, and then of course we want you to drink responsibly and then enjoy the night with confidence that you're gonna feel much different than you imagined the next day. And I have to admit, I was a skeptic about this. We tried it a few years ago. I'll never forget, we were actually on location in Nashville and uh, both Eric and I maybe had a few too many, but we said, you know what? Let's try Z-Biotics up front. Dude, we were back in Adam on the sales floor the next morning like nothing happened. It made such a big difference. I couldn't wait to tell Bruce and everybody else about it. And now our whole team can stay on top of their game all because we all know about Z-Biotics. I am 100% convinced that this actually works. I want you to try it. Savor the moment. Let Z-Biotics do the rest. Go to zbiotics.com slash STWW and you'll get 15% off your first order when you use the code STWW at checkout. Zbiotics is backed with a 100% money-back guarantee, so if you're unsatisfied for any reason, they'll refund your money, no questions asked. Remember, head to zbiotics.com slash STWW and use the code STWW at checkout for 15% off. And we thank you, Zbiotics, for sponsoring today's episode. I don't think that anybody ever had such of a mediocre, meteoric rise is Dwayne Johnson, the rock. And, um, I think it's a, you look at his career after he's left and look at what he's done in the entertainment business and movies saying, I think the same thing can be said there too. Let me ask you this. Um, it feels like there's something special about the rock and I want to know if you can put your finger on it because he rose to the top very quickly in WWE. Obviously he, before that, let's go back. He comes from the, not the best maybe situation family wise, uh, you know, obviously had some, some trials and tribulations as a kid, but then manages to get a scholarship to play football. Odds are way against that. He does it. Uh, then he overcomes all of the initial stop and start craziness in the WWE manages to navigate his way to the top. He's the world champion inside of two years. Uh, almost nobody does that. And then he's gone on to conquer movies in a way really nobody ever has, especially from this world. What is it about the rock? What is that? It, what is that intangible? What's the one character trait that you think the rock possesses that has made this thing happen over and over and over hunger and desire. He, he was, he was hungry literally and figuratively, and he wanted to succeed so bad. And he had a desire to be the absolute best at whatever he did still does. And he, he worked hard. Nobody works harder than the guy. Do you think, so, um, and, and this is kind of a joke or it's felt like a joke, but now it's getting more and more traction with him registering things and reportedly buying domains and things like that. Bruce Mitchell from the torch is convinced the rock is going to be our president. Do you think there's a real opportunity that the rock runs for the presidency? Um, there is yes. You know, stranger things have happened. Uh, you know, he's popular. We, we just had, you know, Donald Trump won it, won an election. And I do think that the rock is, is somebody that people identify with. 
he's got a he's got a true rags to riches story. Um, I don't know if if The Rock would want to take that kind of cut and pay, uh, <laughs> but I don't I don't know if he really wants to open his life up to that kind of scrutiny, um, and and have to relinquish having as much fun as he's having right now. But you never know. You never really know, man. Stranger things have happened. Let me ask you, um, you know, I know we're getting way off track here, but I'm just fascinated by the idea that wrestlers can do this in politics. And I guess if Donald Trump can and Jesse Ventura can, then, then and, and now Linda McMahon can, I guess anybody can. Kane. Uh, oh, Kane. Yeah. Kane's going to be mayor. I, I think come May or August or something like that. Chat me up. There's a rumor out there. A little birdie told me uh, a pretty reliable birdie. Stephen McMahon's going to run for Congress. Have you heard this? And would you be surprised? Uh, I haven't heard it, but I wouldn't be surprised, man. That's some shit right there. Can you imagine if you've got Linda in the cabinet, the rock's going to run for president. I mean, Steph, if Stephanie runs for Congress, um, what? Well, you know what, man, I, you look, you look at the career politicians that have run this country for, for so long, and I don't want to get into a political discussion, Please God, but no. I'm not a fan of career politicians. Okay. I, I get that. I'm just saying, can you imagine a scenario like, yeah, like I need undertaker to run for like, you know, <laughs> I mean, the undertaker's got to run <laughs> governor. Yeah. I mean, well, Something. We, got, well, we got to put somebody, I mean, let's get somebody in a defense role. I mean, what, if, if Kane's going to run. We got to have the undertaker do something. What's stone cold doing? Let's get him in there. And well, I'm sure triple H will be good at it. He's the fucking game, right? Well, yeah. I mean, Steve, Steve could be the, the, uh, ambassador of, uh, whoop ass, uh, undertake undertaker could just, uh, be your whatever the hell, but yeah, it, it's why not? It's just amazing to me that this is a real conversation that, I mean, what the fuck is going on? Okay. You know, what's amazing. You know, what's amazing to me. I've worked with the president of the United States as someone in his cabinet. What is going like, this is so absurd that, you know, Donald Trump, our president knows who you are and you produced him on television. And now Linda's, you know, in the cabinet and Stephanie's going to be a congressperson and the rock's going to be president next. And Kane's mayor. Why can't we get X-Pac in, 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 a, in a power role? Let's make this happen. Sean Waltman. I know. He could legalize marijuana nationwide, but maybe even worldwide. Yeah. Let's and, do it. And he can feed the people them shit sandwiches, right? Conrad, how about you and I run? No. Let's, let's, let's get on the ticket. I, I have 48 jobs as is. And, and one oh, of my jobs. Would you want more? Won't make it. He's only the president. Well. I appreciate your offer, but I'll be vice president. I'll run. You be my vice president. How about I'll be vice president of a podcast. Can I do that? Yes. Okay. People either love clowns or they hate clowns. And you can always think of someone that hides behind the makeup of a clown. You know, for the most part, they're painting on a happy face because underneath the paint is a miserable person. (laughs) And this was an opportunity to take Matt Bourne and take his personality. He was extremely funny. He was quick witted, but very mean spirited. And just take that personality, transform it into a character that uh, is not Matt Bourne, because Matt could be a little bit dry and put some paint on his face. And all of a sudden, Doink the Clown is born. So it all comes from an original suggestion from. Hawk, 
who who brings that who realizes this is the the guy we need and the time we need do you remember those early conversations the well matt had finished up his run in wcw he he didn't want to go back there he came up we were in upstate new york or uh canada somewhere up there i want to say that we were actually in buffalo but I just remember him being in the dressing room. He came up for a quote tryout, see how he looked and see how he was moving in the ring. He wanted to do it as Matt Bourne and Pat and I reminded Vince of the Krusty the Clown deal. And again, you know, just had to go clown, evil clown Vince. And we got, there was a movie out. And it was Evil Clowns from Outer Space. Mm-hmm. I, like, I think that was the, actually the name. I think it's Killer, Killer Clowns. Clowns. Yeah. Yeah. Killer Clowns from Outer Space with these clowns come down in their heels in the movie. It's from uh, 1988 is when it was released. Right. So we got Vince the movie to show him this is what a bad clown looks like. Mm-hmm. Uh, got him, obviously, made him watch The Simpsons, made him watch Krusty. And Vince embraced it. Vince thought it was hilarious. Vince thought that it would be a great character or something that every everybody, everybody can identify with clown. Like I said, you either love him or hate him. So uh, who's who's all involved in pitching Vince on this and showing him the material? Originally, it was all me and Pat. Okay. And we're originally the ones that brought it to him. And then we had creative creative services is the one that came up with the outfit and came up with the drawing for the clown clown face and all that. Well, did you guys um, discuss any sort of potential names, you and Pat and Vince? We probably did, and I couldn't even tell you how Doink came up. I I know Vince is the one who ultimately decided on it. I did not come up with Doink the Clown. It was it was the best of my recollection. You know the, the big hammer that he had yeah. in the beginning? Okay. I think that the art department had drawn the hammer and they put like sound effects, you know, doink and bong and bing and all that stuff on, you know, around the hammer. And I think that's the Vince kind of gravitated to it. That's his name. Doink. Kind of like date, date, date. It's a sound he makes when he walks down. He's doink. He ain't, you know, Michael Hayes had been wanting to come in at the time. Who knows? He might've been named date, date, date. Vince has some sort of weird, I mean, maybe he doesn't, but I, he has a, a giant, oversized, silly hammer like this in his office with the old school WWF logo on it. I mean, you've never talked about that. Do you know where that came from or what it was about? The the hammer was a gift that somebody gave to him. You know, that was the hammer competition, and it's a big wooden like the yeah. hammers that they use at strong, carnivals. Yeah, so you, you do the strongman deal, and you see how far up it goes. Right. Yeah, and someone uh, someone gave that to him. Um, Might have even been Linda, but somebody gave it to him. It's it's a pretty nice wooden one with the WWF logo on it. Well, I just found it interesting because you know the the Doink one is almost like a cartoon version of it. It's just oversized silliness, uh, and it makes sense that it would be there. Do you, when you were first coming up with the gimmick and talking about the character, when did you guys decide on like the mood of the music? and the facials and the silly gags like the the flower that squirts water. Did you guys have any of those? Like how early on was that an idea? Was it once you had Matt Bourne and you had the outfit and you were just trying things? 
Or did you know right away, oh, we could do this gag and he should behave like this? When do you lay all that out? As, as you go along and you start talking about what ifs and, and all these things. Pat Patterson, as a child, ran away from home to join the circus. Really? Yes. Pat Patterson always wanted to be in the circus. He always wanted to be you know, on the trapeze and, and that kind of thing. Pat always wanted to be in the circus. He loved the circus. So Pat had this fascination, you know, with, with the clowns and the two of us together. And then you throw Vince in that mix, who's childlike as well. And you start talking about what is a miserable, what is an evil clown? Right. And we're all doing the music. Yep. And then we have Jim Johnston there and we're telling him what the music is, said, but it's not happy. He's evil. You look at him and the first thing that you see is happiness and joy, joy. And he's a clown and he's got balloons and he's going to be nice to the kids. And then he turns evil. And the things that we would come up with is, is, Instead of bringing joy to kids, he would make kids cry <laughs> and they would be all happy to, oh, hey, it's the clown. It's the clown. And then he'd go, hey, you want to smell my flower? And boom, squirt him in the eye. Oh, you like my hammer? Bam, hit him on the head. Oh, here you go first. Trip him and push him down. Those, those were the ideas that we were coming up with just to be able to portray that this isn't your ordinary Ringling Brothers clown. Afford Anything talks about how to avoid common pitfalls, how to refine your mental models, and how to think about how to think. Paula, while certainly you can mess up on a million dollars a year, it is far less likely than it is on $30,000 a year. Right. I would meet wonderful people that were struggling with a budget that was super tight. It was 100%. You need to make more money. Make smarter choices and build a better life. Afford Anything, wherever you listen. It's going to make kids smile. And we would put him up in the crowd and we would have him do stuff. And then you would see the look on his face where he would be happy and joy, joy. And then it would just go. And you would see him turn into evil doink. Let's talk about, you know, when you guys knew that Matt Bourne was the guy. Did you have the character kind of mapped out first? Uh, you know, and, and you're looking for who could portray it or when, you know, Matt has interest, are you guys just sitting around trying to think of, Hey, what can we put on him? And then somebody brings up, Oh, what about that clown thing? It was, it was Matt Bourne looking for a job and Vince not knowing what to do with Matt Bourne and revisiting the idea and the comment made by, uh, Mike Eggstrand. He's crusty, the clown. Let's make him an evil clown. There you go. Let's paint his face up. Chat me up about um, if he hadn't been doing, who do you think would have been considered? And I know that that's really difficult to pin down, especially based on the way you say it just laid out. But if you knew you kind of had this idea for a clown, could you fancy a guess as to who else might have been in line to get it? Well, again, we didn't have an idea for a clown. It was Matt Bourne looked like a miserable clown. So it was more an idea for Matt than it was somebody to fit a clown gimmick. We we really didn't have the clown gimmick. Clown gimmick came up from Matt's personality and trying to come up with something for Matt Bourne. So 
who reaches out to Matt to come in? Who had a relationship with him? Does he just call the office? Yeah. So he doesn't. I mean, he worked there before, and that was the norm. So you call the office, and you in those days it was probably easier to get Vince on the phone, or would he have tried to talk to you or um, Jr. or who would that have been? No, Jr. wasn't even there at the time. Um, I believe that he called looking for Pat Patterson or myself, and then Pat and I got him up to TV and. The rest, as they say, is history. We saw Matt and trying to think of things to do. So a much different process in those days. Guys would come in and we would bring them to TV and have them work a match to see how they look, make sure they're in shape, make sure that they're what we're looking for. And it didn't matter who it was. Um, Vince would then talk to him and say, what do you want to do? You know, you want to come in? What, you got any ideas? And, and start talking to him about different things. Uh, some guys we would go out and, and look for and, and try and pursue. But Matt was somebody that was looking for a job. He finished up with WCW and came in wanting to work for us and did his, did his match in upstate New York or wherever the hell it was. And Vince said, I see a clown. Mm-hmm. So when he does this match, you know, there's lots of talk out there that Vince wants to kind of see what your attitude's like. So when he's trying to get out like this, would the rule of thumb be that he's going to lose his first match in just to see how he reacts to it? Not necessarily. It would depend upon the talent a lot of times and where, you know, whether it was the first first match on the card and if they had somebody that the was a wwf guy that people knew it all depended it wasn't a let's make them lose no right. that that wasn't the norm chat me up do you remember a situation where there was a guy who vince maybe had some concerns about what his attitude might be and he thought let's just see on the first one do you remember a particular performer where that was the theory let's just try it out dusty piper okay there you go. Uh, he's out of the business uh, for a few years uh, and doesn't really do much at all uh, from 1995 and 1996. And then in early 1997, he starts doing some stuff with ECW. Uh, but then on the August 11th, 1997 edition of Raw, he appears as Shawn Michaels' insurance policy. I'm curious, how does this happen? And after the way things didn't end so well once upon a time, who called who? How did that come about? I got a phone call at my house in Monroe, Connecticut on Oakwood drive on a Sunday afternoon from Vince McMahon and Vince McMahon and Vince Russo were doing the creative and writing the television at the time. And Vince told me that he wanted me to call Rick rude and get Rick rude to TV the next day. I asked what, you know, what kind of deal we were looking to do. Vince was adamant. He did not want to do any kind of long-term deal with Rick Rude. He wanted him on a per night basis, bring him in, uh, get him here. And we'll talk about everything else as, as time goes on. But we just wanted to do a per night agreement with him, get him to Atlantic city. We'll see what we got. So I called Rude, uh, not knowing what the hell to expect. Cause there were, a little bit in our past. We hadn't spoken in quite some time at that point. And 
explained that we'd like to bring him in for TV. Uh, don't know how long of a program we have for him. We would do a per night deal with him. He couldn't work due to his Lloyd's of London insurance. And let's see what happens. And got him there the next day. And so for every appearance subsequent of that, we had to have a release signed and a, a per night contract signed that each day before he appeared. Now, the reason he spends so much time on that is because of what we're about to get into. Uh, a few months after his return, the original DX is formed. Uh, and as everyone recalls, it was Rick Rude, China, Shawn Michaels, and Triple H. Uh, and I'm sure we'll do a whole show about DX in the future. Uh, but was that the initial group that was planned, or did it all just kind of happen organically? DX happened organically. The idea of having Rick Rude there as the bodyguard was China was kind of the bodyguard for Hunter, and Rude was the bodyguard for Sean. And it just organically happened. DX was something that came out of a promo where Bret Hart was talking about uh, Generation X and that Shawn Michaels and Hunter and China and those guys were, you're, you're like D-Generation X. And voila, it's born. Uh, so here we are now, November 17th. Uh, now let's run through this. He's debuting on August 11th. So we're September, we're October we're in November. We're three months later. Uh, Rick Rude shows up on a live edition of WCW Monday Nitro. Of course, as everyone remembers, Raw was airing a taped show that night. So Rude comes out early on Nitro with only a mustache and said that Shawn Michaels never beat Bret Hart. This is about a week after the Montreal Screwjob. And that Vince McMahon instructed a referee to ring the bell and rob Bret Hart of his title. And then an hour later, of course, as we all remember, Rude shows up on Raw wearing a beard. Uh, I don't know that everybody knows this, but it's of note that that weekend of November 14th through the 16th, depending when ECW's television ran in your market of syndication, uh, he was on ECW's Hardcore TV as well. So inside of a week, he's on ECW, WCW, and the WWF. Uh, probably the only person ever to do that. Uh, at least on the same night. My goodness. So I want to know the story. Uh, where did you see this? Were you at home watching? Um, where were you when you first saw, oh, shit, he's on both shows? I was at the studios in Sanford, Connecticut. We were doing the live voiceovers for Monday Night Raw. So while the show was taped, the voiceovers themselves were live. And I watched it on the monitor, live in edit one. So when we hear live and edit one, it sounds like it's uh, a bunch of soundboards and a bunch of monitors and a few chairs and some headsets, not unlike what we're doing right now. And Vince is to your left or to your right and sees him on the monitor and flips out, or is he on commentary? Well, he's not on commentary. He's done by that point. So he's just... I believe the, the first words uttered were, motherfucker. And then a lot of silence and what the fucks. Did anybody take any heat over that? Or did Vince say, it was my call? Oh, God, I took a lot of heat over it, yeah. 
What's how, up? How could you let this happen? We didn't have a contract. You know, during the whole time, the legal department was pretty adamant and and suggested more than once that we tie him up and that we get him under a standard contract of some kind. Rick wanted guarantees in his contract, and Vince was not was not sure that he wanted to use Rude for any extended length of time and was fine going with the the nightly proposition. In addition to that, WCW had no interest in Rude prior to that, and Rude had also expressed that he had no desire to go there. And then Montreal came along and everything changed. Well, what change did this bring about for the WWF? It feels like this is a learning lesson for Vince McMahon and company because this would never happen again. No, it, it, the the change was, you know, by God, man, if you're going to put somebody on television, invest a lot of time and money in them, have them locked up. And if they don't want to sign a contract, then cut them loose, cut ties. The, you know, the Jeff Jarrett thing, and, and even going back before that, the Jeff Jarrett and Road Dog deal, when they walked out in Nashville at that time, their con- contract was up, and they were they had they had limbo in in their contract and then later on when jeff ran his contract out before cleveland it it just astonished me that we wouldn't have those bases covered and it was brought up and and there was you can say all you, you want and vince is a, a absolute genius businessman he's a genius creative but sometimes he's guilty of taking people at their at their word, face value, and still relies on a handshake. Well, now, Rude didn't do anything. So you say that kind of implying that Rude did something wrong here. Well, Rude did indicate, no, I don't think Rude did anything wrong. You said he, he took he's, him at his word, which means he well, went he back Well, he did give his word that he was he was there and he was good, and this is where he wanted to be. He didn't, didn't want to go to WCW, had no desire to go there. But shit changed it, uh Survivor Series. Hey, it's business. All right, let's it's talk business. Let's, I don't blame him for going at all. I probably would have done the same thing given the opportunity. You say shit changed at Survivor Series. Let's talk about that. Did shit change? There's rumor in you that Rick Rude and Jerry Briscoe had an incident in Survivor Series '97. True or false? Absolutely false. Well, what changed at Survivor Series? Just the whole issue with Brett and Sean and the double cross, and and, and when, Rick took that personal. I don't think he took it personal, but it opened up a door where Rick, I, I don't know how many people knew, but they knew Rick was on a nightly deal with WWF. Here's a guy who's just involved in their main event angle that just screwed Bret Hart. Let's see if Rude would be willing to, to come over. Well, he doesn't have a contract. Well, shit, wouldn't you? To me, that was great business. For Bischoff to steal him. For Bischoff and for Rude to go. Uh, and he went for bigger money, I'm sure, than what you guys were paying him. Uh, Meltzer would report that he got a $300,000 deal uh, for, for three him. years. So he got he signed a $900,000 contract here to jump. Uh, that's probably, is it fair to say, that's considerably more than he was making with the WWF at the time? Very much so. Um, I'm curious, as this DXO uh, angle starts to get over between August and November, 
He came and asked for more money along the way, right? Well, whenever we would do our nightly deal, he would always ask about, you know, can I get some more? Can, you know, what are we going to do? Now, I've been I've been present when guys were doing one-offs before. They have to sign a one-night release. Is Correct. Rude signing a new one-night release every single time? Every single night. God, what a paperwork nightmare. Yes. Like, you don't want to let him go out there until you know you have that sign. You can't let him go out there until you know you have it. And signed. if you forget, I mean, he's got some leverage on you. Oh, yeah. No, that was – that's one thing that we did do. We were all over that and making sure that he was signed. And These days they mail you a check. Back then, did they cut you a check right then? I want to say we paid him cash. Wow. Night. Yeah. That's awesome. Uh, I can't imagine in 2016 them just – I mean, maybe they do, and I don't know. I know we're 2017. You know what I mean. Just handing, hey. out, handing out cash at the hey. show. Wow. Uh, so he goes to WCW. Um, do you remember there being any hard feelings between Vince and Rude over that? There were hard feelings with everybody over that, but you can't, when you remove yourself from the personal aspect of it and you just view it from a business standpoint, it was bad business on our part. Yeah. It was bad business to invest that time and that amount of money in someone that we did not have a longer term contract on. And there was no opportunity when you guys are in edit one to try to go edit him out of the tape. No, I mean, we were in it. We were going live. There just wasn't time. Uh, and you know, there's going to be questions about this. Obviously that weekend, you know, he had done the stuff for ECW. You guys didn't have a problem with him doing ECW, but this WCW Nitro thing, totally different animal. One, right. One's okay. and understood and everybody's cool. The other is Cardinal sin. Correct. Hey guys, I want to give you a real quick story. This is an actual testimonial. I just want to brag on it here for a minute. I got to be super dad. Here's what happened. Lana Del Rey came to Huntsville to the Orion theater. And I have to admit, I didn't even know who the hell Lana Del Rey was. But I got a text from my daughter and she said, Hey dad, can you help me get Lana Del Rey tickets? And I said, sure. No problem. When and where she said tonight at Orion. And I texted my buddy Cassio, who's probably the number one morning show host here in Huntsville and said, Hey man, my daughter, Kansas needs to hook up on some tickets. Can you help her with Lana Del Rey tonight? And he said, LOL. Buddy, that's the fastest sellout in Orion history. There's no tickets available. You can't get tickets to that. So I texted the kid. Sorry, dude. I, uh, I failed you. I let you down. Thought I could get them, but, uh, there's no tickets available. They're all sold out. And then she sent me a screenshot and she said, well, this one website has them. And I won't say the name of that website, but I will say that they were the worst tickets there. I'm talking about if they did a to Z seating on the upper deck, it was Z. Her back would have been would have been against the concrete of the venue, the tippy top, absolute worst seat possible. And the tickets were $173 a seat. And I said to myself, self, why did I think of this? Let me open up my game time app. I know exactly what to do. Y'all, I can't believe this is real, but I might actually post this on social. Uh, how's floor seven row a sound? Yeah. My kid got front row floor seats for $200. I could not believe it. What she wanted me to get her were last row upper deck seats for 173, 200 bucks front row. How do you beat that? It all happened. Thanks to game time. They've got killer last minute deals. I'm a believer. That's a real story. It just happened. Look it up. Lana Del Rey Orion like two weeks ago, but here's the cool thing, man. They made it so easy. 
You get views from your seats. You get a best price guarantee. I've never had a better or easier ticket buying experience. I pulled the trigger within minutes. The tickets were in my phone. I didn't have to print anything out. I didn't have to dig through email. It was there. Boom. Good to go. I could even transfer them to my daughter. Just a couple of clicks, type in her name, type in her email. She had them just like that. Game time is the only ticketing app that gives you complete peace of mind with your purchase. You see your seat view before you buy the seat, you know exactly what to expect. With the game time guarantee, it means you always get the best price. If you find tickets in the same section in the row for less game time will credit you 110% of the difference. That was not my experience folks. I got the cheapest deal I could have ever possibly imagined. My daughter wanted me to spend 173 at a nosebleed. How's 200 for front row sound. We hooked it up. Dad saved the day. Actually, it was game time. And they don't just do this for concerts. They can hook you up for football and basketball and baseball and comedy and theater and more. Seriously, this was the same day as the event. She starts texting me at two in the afternoon. The event was that night at seven. She had them in plenty of time. And guess what? I'm the hero. And it's all because I knew how to use game time. You need to download it right now. What are you waiting for? If you haven't already, Game time has deals right up until the start of the event. So you didn't miss out. I didn't either. Let's take the guesswork out of buying tickets for game time. Just download the game time app, create an account, use our code wrestle. You'll get $20 off your first purchase. Terms apply again, create an account, redeem the code wrestle W R E S T L E. And you'll get $20 off download game time today. Last minute tickets, lowest price guarantee. WrestleMania 13, which we've covered in long form in the archives. It went down March 23rd and he would defeat the Sultan who would later become Rikishi. And the Sultan had both Bob Backlund and the iron Sheik there when he retained the intercontinental title. Um, and believe it or not, this is kind of interesting. Tony Atlas was shown in the front row. Tony Atlas is the former partner of Rocky Johnson. And after the match, Rocky's dad, Rocky Johnson comes in the ring and fights off both the Sheik and Backlund. But Atlas wasn't involved. Um, what are your memories of this first WrestleMania moment for Rocky? And why was Tony Atlas in the front row with Lou Albano if he wasn't going to be used here? Just to be able to get legends on the show. And it was a good time to be able to show because of the relationship with Tony Atlas and Rocky Johnson. They were tag team champions in the WWF. And you show Tony and he's here supporting The Rock. But it was... Rocky, his father, uh, that was his spot at the end there to get in the ring and stand side by side by his son. It, it was just timing. You, you do things that make sense. And, and Rocky Johnson having a tie, I mean, uh, Tony Atlas having a tie to Rocky Johnson in the rock was a nice time to show him out in the crowd. But then, uh, the moment though was for father and son at the end to clear the ring. <laughs> I remember damn God, I, I just, looked at Pat and I said, he couldn't have worn a suit for this, uh, meaning Rocky Johnson. It's like, you know, come on. I just remember his underwear hanging out of his pants and it just was, but it was, it was a nice, feel good, you know, happy, happy, joy, joy moment. Uh, how did, um, Rocky feel about having his dad involved? Whose idea was that? Was everybody for it? You kind of mentioned maybe they were on again, off again. Clearly they're back on. Well, it was, I, I don't remember. He had, he didn't really have a choice. It was something that, 
we had come up with and thought it would be a nice moment for him. And uh, it was a WrestleMania moment where we would always bring back the legends and we would bring back Hall of Famers. And it was a nice way to kind of spotlight them. And um, we pitched it. He didn't have a problem with it. And, you know, we did it. But it was our idea to go out and do it because we knew that Rocky was going to be there and planned on coming out. Thought, okay, you know, this this makes sense. And let's have him come out and do a little thing at the end with Backlund and Sheik and let Rocky come out and help clear the ring. Well, let's talk a little bit about uh, what he's doing from here. Um, March 24th, he would defeat Leaf Cassidy. And then on March 31st, he defeated Bret Hart by DeHue to retain the title. Uh, and this is another thing that Bret wrote about in his book. He wrote, that night had one more wrinkle. I was slated by the booking committee to challenge Rocky Mavia for the Intercontinental title, and Hunter was insisting I beat him. I didn't see any need for me to beat Rocky. It wouldn't build heat for my new heel turn and would only undermine a real talent. I insisted on a DQ instead, which infuriated Hunter. He and Sean disliked Rock intensely, and they were myopic to see that Rocky was destined to become one of the all-time greatest megastars in the history of the business, The Rock. Looking back, I'm glad I got to work with him at least once. Do you recall, I mean, again, it feels like we're, we just talked about this from the prior month. Hunter is just dead set on trying to derail The Rock, or was this a way to get the belt onto Brett, kind of the, the second tier belt onto Brett and out of the world title picture for Sean. No, not at all. It, it was, we were, we were moving towards kind of the attitude with Brett and no, I had no desire to put the uh, intercontinental championship back on Brett. I'm not saying you did. I'm asking why is Hunter pushing for that? No, I, more than anything. I just think it was a jealousy and a professional rivalry with rock. Anytime that, again, that's what I said. Anytime that somebody was coming up, the guys are always jockeying for positions. And I think that all of that was just professional rivalry and looking at it going, okay, well, you know, Hey, this guy's coming up. Why, you know, Brett's Brett's over here. He shouldn't beat him. And so much of that, you have to understand it's because the guy says that in a locker room around the other guys, that's. I'll quote our president. That's locker room talk, and it's guys stirring other guys up. It's ribbing on the square. But there is a lot of professional rivalry there where guys look at other guys. You see somebody coming up, and you're going to be fighting for your position. So it may have been tongue-in-cheek, but it may have been political jockeying for position. Well, I mean, it's it's jockeying for position in their mind. Yeah, go and look. I hope everybody hears it. But you also do that in the locker room to get other guys talking and going, Oh boy. As a reminder, that's the night where Brett got Owen and bulldog back together and they kind of reformed the heart foundation. Uh, so this is very early in the heel run, just on the heels of, um, WrestleMania 13. Uh, I should mention here. I don't know if I, if I don't say it right here, when we'll get it. Brett wrote in his book, something like the rock first developed hard feelings towards Shawn Michaels at a show for Polynesian Pacific pro wrestling where the rocks grandmother had been working as the event coordinator. While details are sketchy, the story goes that Shawn Michaels was blatantly disrespectful to The Rock's grandmother, almost leading to a physical altercation with The Rock. So this would have been before The Rock was ever in wrestling, uh, because that all kind of got shut down in 88. So we're nine years prior to that here. Do you remember hearing about some sort of incident between 
Shawn Michaels and The Rock? Was that ever discussed? No, not to my knowledge. Okay. Um, let's talk about, I mean, do you want to say anything about this Rocky Triple H, Sean political stuff else? Or do you want me to move on? No, I mean, it's, that's just what it is. It's professional jockeying and it's guys, a professional rivalry. When you see somebody coming up and you're going, oh, hell man, is my spot being challenged? You're looking at keeping your position and you're going to fight for it to me. That's healthy. If you're not worried about your position and you're not fighting for it, then why the hell are you in the business? Uh, the next night in Springfield, Sid would beat Brett and that would go down in a cage match. And Brett says when he got to the building that day, he sat with Vince and outlined a year and a half long program in which Austin would turn babyface at WrestleMania. And the way Vince sold him on this, I thought was genius. Allegedly Vince hands, Brett two lists of names. And the list were people Brett could work with as a face and who he could work with as a heel. Brett said the heel list appealed to him much more. Uh, that babyface list would have included Sean, Undertaker, Austin, and Brett wasn't sold on turning heel until he saw the list. Whose idea was it to present Brett with the two lists? Because this is fucking genius. Well, it, it wasn't necessarily, t- it was the roster. It was like, here you go, Brett. Here's the roster. Guys on the right are your heels. Guys on the left are your baby faces. So there are your opponents. And, you know, I go back to when, way back when, when the first time that Brett became the WWF champion and we were getting him over and he beat everybody. And it got to the point where Vince, you know, looked at it and said, you know, we, we've got to do something different here because um, Brett just didn't want to work with anybody. And Vince had done that. Then he ended in the roster and said, Brett, who's left to work with? Who haven't you beat? And he went down the, he went down the roster and, and it was Papa Shango. He goes, I hadn't, I hadn't beat him yet. And Vince just threw up his hands. Okay. God damn it, Brett, go out and put the sharpshooter, make, make him tap out tonight for TV. And it was the same thing. It was here. Here's, here's the guys. What side do you see yourself on? Here are your opponents. And on the, to me, the only logical side for him to be on was the heel side, working with the baby faces. Cause then it was all fresh matchups. Uh, Brett says that he was expecting to put Austin over at mania, but Vince tells him, no, he wants Brett to go over and Vince explains to him how he wants him to turn heel only in the United States. And he'd still be a baby face around the rest of the world. Brett said he had no idea how to make that work since everyone around the world watches the same show. And Vince said, everyone around the world loves to hate Americans. We come across like we're better than everyone else. This won't affect your merchandise sales because you'll be loved abroad for standing up to us Americans. Brett says he thought about it for the rest of the day. And then the following day, he called Vince and said, as long as it's done smartly and I have my hands on the controls of what I say and do, I'm in. And Vince says, you won't regret it. And then he told Brett to keep quiet about this upcoming heel turn. And he agreed. So who realized you could do this? Maybe be a heel in America, but a baby face everywhere else. Is this a Russo idea? No, it was, it was just what was happening already. They were already booing Brett domestically. They, they loved him internationally. They loved him in Canada and it, it was already just organically happening. So we were fighting that on television. So 
you, you, you continue to fight it, but yet those reactions are what they're going to be. And you have to go with it at some point. Uh, on the March 10th raw, uh, JR did an in-ring interview with Ken Shamrock about being the guest ref at WrestleMania and Shamrock saying the normal things like, uh, Brett and Austin don't like it. Well, that's too bad. And then Austin appeared on the Titan Tron and said he hopes Brett wins next week so he can have the world title on the line at WrestleMania. And he trash talks Brett a little bit, who then comes out. And then Brett starts to complain about losing the title to Sid. And he says people say he's crying. And he said he's sorry about crying, but he's tired of the injustice. He talks about the cage match next week on Raw. And now we've got one of the more fun Raws set for the following week. But I'm curious... When and why was the decision made to add Shamrock to that WrestleMania 13 match? We were looking to try and bring Shamrock in, in a little bit different way, not just bring him in as a competitor. And he was billed as the, uh, world's most dangerous, dangerous athlete, I believe. And so instead of just bringing him right in as a worker in that UFC world, Kenny had a really good following just looking at a different way to bring somebody in and you bring him in as an outsider, put him in our ring as an enforcer and introduce him in a different way. So here we go. March 16th, Madison square garden. Uh, we see Sid beat Brett in a cage to retain. Uh, and the next week on raw, we see Brett wrestle Sid in the steel cage for the title. This is a big deal because Austin is going to interfere here to help Brett. And then the undertaker comes out and fights Austin off. And all four are on top of the cage at the same time. Taker knocks Austin off the cage, and then Brett superplex Sid back into the ring. But Austin hits Taker with a chair, and Brett tries to walk out of the cage. But the Undertaker slams the door on him, so Sid can climb out of the cage to win the match. Uh, here's where business starts to pick up. After the match, Brett snaps. McMahon comes in the ring and says he must be frustrated. And Brett pushes him down and says something like, Frustrated isn't the goddamn word for it. This is bullshit. And then he talks about being screwed and no one's doing anything about it. No one in the building cares. No one in the dressing room cares. And everyone in the dressing room knows that he's the best there is the best there was. So the best there ever will be. And if the crowd doesn't like it, tough shit. What are the more memorable moments of my fandom right here, Bruce? It blurred the lines of reality for me because we're pushing down the owner. We're cursing into a microphone. So all of a sudden it's like, okay, I know all that's bullshit, but this is real. This is real. I believed it. And, uh, I, I'm curious, many of you've never talked about this. Did you guys have to give USA a heads up about the language or is this a forgiveness, not permission situation? No, we gave him a heads up. Definitely gave him a heads up. That was during a time that you, you wanted to, we were, we were playing nice. So <laughs> yeah, we had to. Was Brett nervous about talking like that, given he had sort of positioned himself as a role model for so long? Brett, you know, it's funny because Brett would do his promos and come across whiny. And then when you would write a whiny promo for him, he would read it as, now I sound like I'm bitching. Now I sound like I'm whiny and crying. Because when you go into business for yourself, that's what you do. Austin then appeared on screen and said, conspiracy, my ass, Brett, all you want to do is cry like a baby. And he threw it away because you're a loser. It could have been us for the world title at WrestleMania, but you blew the whole thing. Cause you're a loser. And then Brett challenges him to come down, but says, you don't have the guts to come out. So Sid comes out and as he's walking to the ring, uh, Brett says, you know, that belt is mine. 
And Sid replies, I don't know shit, crybaby. This is maybe one of the best go-home editions of Raw in history up to this point. We go off the air with Sid in the ring, The Undertaker's here, Brett's diving through the ropes, Austin's out, everybody's fighting. Was everybody just tickled with this? This is probably the best go-home edition of Raw in history at that point. God, I thought it was excellent. And, and you know, you, you bring up the little thing like Brett diving through the ropes and stuff. Brett Hart is responsible for so many firsts, um, you know, going through the table and just the innovative things that Brett would do. Brett always looked for a different way to get into the sharpshooter. He, he would sit there for hours sometimes and just be, you know, uh, him and Owen or, or, uh, whoever he would have people in the ring and always look for innovative ways to get in and out of holds. And it just always astonished me, you know, and, and I'll give you another reason why Brett never wanted to go to WCW in the early days. Brett was an artist and he, he liked to draw and he liked to do things. And, and he always considered the ring, his canvas. And he just didn't like the way that the WCW ring looked. And he didn't like their logo on the mat. And he felt that, uh, he couldn't paint a pretty picture in their ring. So little sidebar. Interesting. Late April Pillman's finally returning. And this time he attacks Austin with a chair to save Bret Hart. And at this point, Brett's a heel and he's running with Owen and Davey. Uh, but immediately after Pillman realizes he may have overdone it. And it feels like a lot of start and stop with his ankle. Uh, towards the end of April in Omaha, he does a, a very religious promo saying that everyone should bow their heads and he holds his hands up and gets down on a knee and starts praying for the complete annihilation and destruction of Austin and begging that he be stricken down and that we, the audience need to open our hearts and let our savior Bret Hart in. Um, and then he brings out Davy and Owen and. You know, they pray together and they say they're supposed to turn the cheek, turn the other cheek to Austin and he points his butt towards the screen and Austin eventually gives chase and says, give your soul to the Lord or somebody because your ass is mine. And this is one of the first times, um, besides Austin 316, that religious stuff had started to be played. Also a first for the WWF. I did it for three and a half years. No, you weren't religious. You were about love. Okay. Um, officially, it's been mentioned that Pillman wasn't a member of the Hart Foundation, just an affiliate, because he wasn't related. Uh, did you guys ever have any sort of conversation about that? About, you know, about what? About that he's not really a member and he's an affiliate. Yeah, but he was part of the family. Uh, yeah, he was a Calgary guy, dungeon guy. Got to start there. Meltzer reports around this time that uh, Furnace and LaFon were originally supposed to be the ones doing the Americans don't understand angle that ultimately Brett wound up doing so well where their heels on one side, faces on the other. Was that originally ever discussed from your recollection about <sighs> Furnace and LaFon? No, no. Once again, your rumor and innuendo uh, is incorrect and... Even, even with Brett, that was something that wasn't planned. That's something that just happened. And it was a phenomenon that we just went with. That's one of those deals where you get into something and you realize 
uh, wow, we got something here because we're running shows, obviously, in the United States and in Canada, and we're getting different reactions, so we ran with it. But it wasn't planned ahead of time. Okay, this is what we're going to do because you, you read your audience, and that was one of those things that just happened. So once again, that that's a situation where your wrestling journalist media um, tries to make up their own stories and make their um, what the hell is that word I'm looking for? Help me out. Narrative. Narrative fit the situation. Uh, cold day in hell is a pay-per-view and, uh, undertaker and Steve Austin are the main event. And after a stone cold stunner on the undertaker, Pillman hops the guardrail and rang the bell, which caused some chaos in the confusion. Taker hits the tombstone and steals the victory, which furthers this Austin Pillman situation. I've always wanted to ask this because I found it odd at the time. And when we're talking about it. I know people like when I say this, who knows when we'll talk about cold day in hell pay-per-view again, Vince wasn't at this pay-per-view and I always wanted to know the scoop here. Apparently someone named Rose passed away the night before. Who was this? That was his best friend's mom. Okay. Uh, is this the first pay-per-view you remember Vince not being at? No. What other ones would he have missed? Do you recall any of them? He missed the king of the ring in Baltimore when he was having his next surgery. Um, maybe an in your house here or there. Okay. Uh, in May, Pillman does a uh, segment on shotgun Saturday night. At some point in there, Sonny is talking to mankind, interviewing mankind. And she says, I won't bite. And Pillman immediately quips, but she will certainly swallow continuing his edgy loose cannon deal. Uh, this has to be a rib in May. There is a heart foundation attack on Bob Holly. And in the melee, Pillman brings a squeegee to the fight, but a rib work for Sid. So by now you've probably heard Bruce and I argue about, well, almost everything, but one of our most heated arguments was about who is the official dog of something to wrestle. And I think we all know by now it's our dog Ginger here at the house here at the Conradison. Seriously, Bruce and I argue like cats and dogs <laughs> over who is the official pet because they're a member of our family. We're advocating for our family and our next partner has truly made a positive impact on one of the most important people in my life. And no, I'm not talking about Bruce. I'm talking about my dog Ginger and let's be real. Having a pet is expensive. From getting natural pet food to pet sitting when you go on vacation, man, the cost can really sky skyrocket on you if you're not careful. So there's one thing that's definitely worth it for your fur baby, and that's pet insurance. I love Ginger, and I want to do everything I can to help her have a happy, full life. That's why I'm proud to say that today's podcast is sponsored by Embrace Pet Insurance. It's time to upgrade your pet insurance game. Whether you have a dog or cat, Embrace Pet Insurance offers customized plans for your exact needs. And by the way, did you know that veterinary costs have increased by 33% from 2022 to 2023? That's insane. With Embrace Pet Insurance, you can visit any vet or emergency clinic. And if you have multiple multiple pets to insure, did you know you're eligible for like a 10% multi-pet discount? That's right, not only that, but they also have a 24 seven helpline and even optional wellness rewards program 
to help ensure that you prioritize preventative care. So hopefully your pets never actually need to use embrace in the first place. And I have to tell you, this has been something that's been near and dear to me. My daughter, Kansas, uh, just lost her dog of nine years. And man, that process was not only sad, but very expensive. Uh, Embrace pet insurance would have saved her mom a lot of cash. And listen, I understand that, you know, some of you may think that pet insurance is unnecessary or pricey, but buddy, there is nothing I wouldn't do to take care of my family. And now I'm not just talking about my four-legged family members, but man, to be able to keep my daughter from feeling like that, come on. It's a no brainer for me. As a matter of fact, let me read one of these testimonials. Here's what one embrace customer said. Embrace made such a tremendous difference in my life. I could make decisions for my dog without thinking about my own needs. I could give him whatever the vet suggested he'd need thinking of only how to best help him. Every part of this process was easy from getting a pre-existing condition screening to making claims to being reimbursed. And every person I spoke to at embrace was compassionate and professional. My advice is to get coverage early and get it from embrace. It was not just a good financial decision for us, but also the most humane and caring one. Seriously, you're going to get to a spot where you're going to wish that you had embrace. You're going to wish you had insurance and embrace can make it very affordable for you. So don't wait for that unexpected to happen. Join the massive community of pet owners who trust embrace pet insurance to protect their pet head right now to embrace pet insurance.com slash wrestle and sign up for pet insurance today. Make sure you go to embrace pet insurance.com slash wrestle or else they won't know. I sent you that's embrace pet insurance.com slash wrestle. <laughs> uh, there's a huge buildup to the match. The finally, we're going to get a payoff man with this Austin thing. Let's back this up now. This all started in October of 96. We're now in June of 97 and Pillman's doing a lot of promotional work locally, uh, because he's finally going to face Austin and what a big card this will be. The main event is Bret Hart versus Shawn Michaels, the rematch from WrestleMania 12. But now of course, as you probably remember, Bret can't work the show because he's injured his knee. So they call an audible. So instead of Bret and Shawn and Austin and Pillman, Sean just wrestles Austin and they do an interview segment early in the show where Austin attacks Pillman and puts his head in the toilet and flushes it. Is that a Vince idea? Giving a guy swirly? Probably either, either that or Austin might've even been Brian. I, I have no idea. Uh, during that match with Sean, uh, Austin hurts his knee. So the rematch for the next night, which was going to be Pillman Austin. Uh, since it couldn't be on pay-per-view, they said, oh, we'll just make it the Raw main event. Well, now Austin's knee's hurt, so they can't do this big return match that Pillman's been building to, but they still want to put Pillman in the match. So he wrestles Mankind, seemingly out of nowhere. Um, and it's a little bit of a letdown, and he eventually does get his shot at Austin on Raw. Uh, but it's a, it's a DQ because the Hart Foundation is handcuffed to the ring post. Austin stuns a ref. Owen fishes a key out of the ref's pocket and somewhere in the melee Pillman gets his nose busted here. Uh, it's actually broken. So, uh, end of June, uh, WWF steals yet another idea from ECW and Pillman attacks a fan, uh, to be written off as the announced team. And I want to ask you about this because he's written off the announced team because they think they have a deal in place for Paul Heyman 
to agree to participate as a color commentator for Shotgun Saturday Night. Uh, what's your recollection of that situation? Because I know you were very involved in Shotgun Saturday Night. Well, there there was speculation to use Paul, but it wasn't ever really a done deal. So Paul had agreed to do it and just then decided he didn't want to do it at the last minute. I think Paul felt that that would hurt, and I'm putting words in Paul's mouth, uh, I think would have hurt his credibility with his fan base. Um, so July is the Canadian stampede. Oh, by the way, it's worth mentioning. Cornette winds up replacing Pillman on shotgun Saturday night. Something pretty fun there. <laughs> Heyman is replaced by Cornette. Uh, July is the Canadian <laughs> stampede. Thank you. Thank you. In Calgary, uh, the Hart Foundation will take on Legion of Doom. Ken Shamrock, Goldust, and Steve Austin. Pillman is the first out for the home team. And the crowd goes banana. Uh, probably the loudest pop of Pillman's career. Uh, that August, SummerSlam is sold out in New Jersey. And it's a huge house. And Pillman is wrestling Goldust here. And the deal is, if Pillman loses, he has to wrestle in a dress. And this was a common gimmick match in the South back in the day. So there's like a mannequin there with a dress on it. Uh, the SummerSlam match had uh, a botched finish, but of course Pillman loses because the, we've got to see him in this dress. Uh, that same month, Pillman fails a drug test for DECA, and there were rumors at the time uh, that he, as punishment, would be working for free. So we're going to book you on, book you on the shows but not pay you. Because you failed this drug test. I can't imagine that's the case, Bruce. Shit on that. I, I honestly don't remember, but uh, there were times where guys would work in lieu of pay if they flunked drug tests, and that, that was very few and far between. I don't remember this instance in particular. So, Give me an example of somebody. In my head, that was never been a deal oh. that Vince would have went for. Okay. Well, I mean, it, it was. If, if we had guys for TV and needed them, then it's like, okay, come work, but you're not getting paid. Uh, that was part of their. Give me a name of a guy. No. So we're never going to talk money or why we fail or, or fail drug tests ever. Well, no, I'm not going to talk about failing drug tests back then when it was a confidential test. No. Oh. Then it was a confidential test. So. Pillman lays out a challenge for the next pay-per-view, which is in September, which will be in your house ground zero. And he says, if he can't beat gold dust, he will retire forever. And if Pillman wins, uh, he gets Marlena for 30 days. Goldust says no. And then Pillman pushes the issue and says that gold daughter, Dakota is really Brian Pillman's daughter. Marlena is then pushed and accepts for Goldust. and Goldust is kind of confused. Like, why would you do this? But it comes out here in storyline, uh, and it's revealed to the audience at home that in real life, Brian Pillman had dated Marlena before Goldust met her back when they were all in WCW. Uh, and the storyline is Pillman dumped Marlena and Dustin was the rebound. And Dustin has said since this was a sore spot with him in real life at the time, but business is business. Do you remember this being an issue? I know that it was an issue once upon a time, supposedly with Dusty and Dustin because Terry did makeup for WCW and had apparently 
you know, hung out with some of the guys and dust dusty didn't look at that very favorably, but Dustin didn't care and loved her anyway. So do you remember this being any sort of a heat issue at all in real life backstage? It was, you know, it was probably uncomfortable for Dustin and for Terry, but it was real life. Everybody was on board and, you know, it was a story and it was something again that everybody can relate to. I think that people in general can relate to relationships that, that go awry. So having, to work with and, and be involved in that, that was something that people could, could definitely relate to. So everybody was professional about doing that. It wasn't, it wasn't that big of a deal. We made it a big deal. We made it again. It was blurring the lines of fantasy and reality. Uh, Marlena tries to help gold dust and uh, has a purse with a brick in it, but Pillman gets it and uses it for the win uh, before dragging Marlena back to his car with him. And looking back, you could see where some of the seeds, or so it would seem, were being planted for her to turn heel at the end, like this was her plan all along. Do you remember what the payoff was supposed to be for this? Was that supposed to be the big revelation? I believe so. Uh, I believe, you know, the idea was for her to turn heel for a while and then end up going back to gold dust, you know, and unfortunately, um, with what did happen in, in real life, it's one of those situations where you kind of get a black hole and you lose sight of everything, I guess. So I, I couldn't go back and tell you, oh, well, this is what we had planned. Uh, I think that was the idea that Marlena would, would be with Brian and then go back to Dustin at the end. So the WWF starts running what they call the Pillman Triple X Files, um, and it's just videos on Raw to show Goldust that Pillman is in a hotel room with his wife making crude jokes and references in the video, of course. Uh, she's coming to the ring with Pillman at this time wearing all black and a nose ring, eventually even a dog collar. The first WrestleMania goes down. Uh, lots of controversy surrounding, surrounding this and the promotion for it because Mr. T was involved. And we're in WrestleMania season right now in 2017. And there's so many people who say that, you know, oh, WrestleMania is not for part-timers. It's not for celebrities. It's for you know, the guys as a reward for all the hard work they've put in over the years. And I know you weren't there for the first WrestleMania, but Mr. T was, and he was there in the main event. So WrestleMania has kind of always been about mainstream and outsiders and trying to attract as many eyeballs as possible. Wouldn't you agree? It, yeah, without a doubt. I mean, that's what made WrestleMania stand out is Vince would always say you grow from the, uh, outside in and, I was on the outside of the WrestleMania bubble at the time, but the thought of putting a Hollywood actor in a ring to compete with professional wrestlers was frowned upon by every old timer and every wrestling purist in the world. How dare Vince McMahon put this Hollywood actor in a main event? Right. Against professional wrestlers. So the scuttlebutt on the other side of that coin was, well, you know, if T gets out of hand or uh, the Orndorff and 
Piper, they're going to have to put him in his place. They're not going to sell for an actor, are they? they? They thought never in a million years can a professional wrestler sell for a Hollywood actor. So there was a lot of scuttlebutt. There, there was so much rumor and innuendo and bullshit going on prior to the first WrestleMania with allegedly promoters and old timers in the business making offers to, to Piper and Orndorff to to hurt uh, Mr. T in the match, to embarrass him and beat the shit out of him in the match. Well, now, let's talk about that. Why are you hitting us with allegedly? Did it happen or did it not happen? It's been thirty well, years. I, well I don't I don't know if it I don't know if it did or not, but you know there were there was always rumor and scuttlebutt that, you know, Vern and, and Bill Watts and um uh, just different guys like that were saying, yeah, well, you know, what if if guys uh, just took business into their own hands? They'd always have a place here. Well, okay, I hear that, but you were boys with Piper. Did he ever tell you that somebody extended such an offer? He told he told me about, you know, there was the offer with Vern uh, and Iron Sheik with Hogan back in the time. Yeah, in 84. Um, no, I don't know that Roddy and I ever really discussed any specific things. I know that he... He spoke about how what he wanted to do. Roddy did not like Mr. T. He's been very public about that, and that seemingly never got fixed. They never really saw eye to eye. He felt, Actually, they did. Yeah, they did before he died. Well, he was shitting on him at WrestleMania 30, I'll tell you that. But that's that's where they that's where T got inducted into the Hall of Fame? Mm-hmm. Yeah, they, they, they kissed and made up that night. Oh, that's very cool. That's good to hear. And, uh, I, yeah, I'll tell you that whole story when we get there. It was, uh, cause Roddy, Roddy told me all about that. Well, let's just do it now. Mr. Uh, Roddy was there. Roddy was there with his son, Cole. He, and as, as we said, Roddy despised Mr. T felt he had no, no place in the business, felt that T didn't respect the business. And there, there was just mutual hatred there. So when T went into the Hall of Fame, uh, all the way up into it, you know, Piper was dead set, and he was very vocal about it. But he told me the story that the night that T was inducted, he had his family there. Uh, Mr. T had his had his son there and had his several members of his family. His whole family was there. Yeah, he his, had an entourage. Right, his whole family. But Roddy had his son with him. And as they were leaving... They were in the back, and Mr. T and and had done that speech talking about his mama. Yeah, on Mother's Day, on Father's Day, and my mother, I pitied a fool. Roddy was. They kind of ran into each other, and he said Mr. T was in front of him, and he said he looked at T with his family and looked over at, at his son, and he said he felt just kind of small. And he said he went over and, and, and grabbed T and pulled him off to the side and said, you know what? I've never liked you. <laughs> His only Roddy can do. Uh, just explained that he never really, really cared for him, but he saw him with his family and he could respect family. And he said he was here with his son. He goes, I see you here with your family. And I just want to bury our past and put it all behind us. And, and can we make an attempt to be friends? And he said that T was completely cool with that. And they basically hugged and made up right at that point. And Roddy told me 
sitting down in Irma's in downtown Houston, just how it was at that moment, it was like a, a huge weight lifted off of his shoulders. Yeah. And it's worth mentioning it had been 30 years since the first WrestleMania. So certainly Hot Rod could hold a grudge. Well, that certainly seems that way. So let's kind of talk through, um, the Mr. T thing, because at the time, man, he was, he was letting some pretty controversial stuff fly. He said something about T something along the lines. And I'm paraphrasing. He wears more chains than his ancestors. Uh, wow. That doesn't age well wow. and lots of heat. Um, and, and he had, you know, as we've talked about a lot of animosity towards working with this celebrity and he's coming in here, you know, trying to take food off my table. And ultimately, Piper refuses, according to rumor and innuendo, to lose uh, and take the pinfall, even though he's the guy with all the heat at WrestleMania. And he said in a WWF DVD, quote, I got kids. The way I feed my children is how much money I can make. I wouldn't lay my shoulders down for anybody. Do you remember him always having... And through the, the rest of the show, I'm sure some of this will come out, but it seems to me as if he always had a chip on his shoulder and some would say it was due to the way he was ribbed the first time he was at the garden or, and I'm sure we'll talk about that or, or you know, the way he grew up, that he grew up kind of rough, but it, it feels as if he was very difficult to deal with, with promoters and untrusting of folks and, um, maybe wasn't always in the right mood to do what's best for business, so to speak. Can you speak to that? Roddy definitely had a chip on his shoulder. Yeah. He, he was a smaller guy in big man's business, but he, you know, he had the gift of gab and the son of a bitch drew money. He drew money and he made money. So he couldn't be denied. And I think that sometimes Roddy was put in a position that he felt, well, not sometimes. Roddy always felt he had to defend himself. He didn't trust anybody, and he had very few friends. When I say very few friends, he had a lot of friends, but he had probably few friends that he could really trust and confide in. And from roughly 19, I don't know, maybe 1990, 1989 on, um, I'm proud to say that I, I may have been one of those friends because we, we had many, many, many deep, deep conversations over the years. But he just, yeah, he walked around with a chip on his shoulder. He, he felt that he was all, the only one that was looking out for Roddy Piper was going to be Roddy Piper. Roderick Toombs is the only guy looking out for Roddy Piper. So, yeah, he fought for it, man. He, he really did. He didn't, he, didn't, uh, he didn't think anybody else was going to look out for him. Well, and that seems like uh, a little bit of a theme with him. Uh, of course, we know that Mr. T and Roddy Piper had a boxing match at WrestleMania 2. And then there's the famous WrestleMania 3 match with uh, Adrian Adonis. Uh, we're doing some strutting and cutting after the match and giving a haircut. And then we're off. And I'm curious because this is where you kind of come into the story and into the fold with the WWF starting right after WrestleMania 3. So when you get there, Roddy's gone, and he'd be away for two years. And he leaves to make the movie They Live and supposedly try his hand at acting in Hollywood. 
from your perspective, like when your early conversations on the inner circle with Vince McMahon, what's the talk? What's the tone? What's the narrative about Roddy Piper? They're happy he's gone. He was difficult to deal with, and they put a spin on it. He was burnt out. Uh, they felt like they had done all they could creatively. It was Roddy's call. They were happy he was gone. It was mutual. What really happened? Well, again, this is this is secondhand. I give you what Vince's perspective was to me was simply that Roddy had an opportunity in Hollywood. Roddy wanted to pursue that. He felt that he had done all that he needed to do in the wrestling business at that time. And Vince was in a position, especially after WrestleMania three, that he felt, well, you can't do both. Um, you either are going to go and, and chase your Hollywood dreams, or you're going to stay here and be Roddy Piper. Roddy chose Hollywood. Um, now these guys are, are actually working together. And I think that's kind of funny. I, I maybe had blocked that out. Maybe as a painful memory, they're working together in house shows very often. And allegedly they go to Vince Russo, uh, because they're not happy with their individual gimmicks. And this isn't like a one-time visit with Vince. This is often, they don't like the real double J. They don't like rockabilly. And somehow, According to the rumor and innuendo, Bruce, Russo decides to put them together as a tag team. And Road Dogg has said that the Outlaws were sort of one of Russo's first projects, and he credits his writing to a lot of their success. But Russo has a different story. He says it's actually Vince McMahon who put the Outlaws together, and Russo said himself that he just didn't see anything in them at the time. Set the record straight. How do you remember this pairing coming together, and whose brainchild is this originally? Well, okay, and the way I remember it, and Russo didn't see anything in him and, and didn't see anything in him, obviously, individually as the real Double J or as Rockabilly, and they'd come together. The, the first time that I remember the suggestion for the pairing was from Shawn Michaels, and Shawn was pitching Vince McMahon and myself that, hey, these two guys, put them together, as a tag team, their personalities, they complement each other, they're friends, and they would make a great tag team. So let, let's, you know, you should try them, and, and they're not going anything anywhere as a singles, so try them as a tag team. Right. And they had pitched it, and Vince McMahon loved it, and he, he thought that that was a way to be able to, to get their personalities out of them and, and let them go. But I also do have to give, you know, again, God, what do, what, what is this world coming to? Two weeks in a row that I'm going to praise Vince Russo? Listen. Russo was responsible for a lot of the writing and, and helping the New Age Outlaws, even though he didn't see it, right? didn't believe in it. He helped, you know, that's another example of it. He helped it, and he did help it get over. So Billy Gunn has a different recollection. He says the first time they were put together, they were supposed to do a run-in during the Undertaker-Shawn Michaels match. And they're actually on their way out when they hear from the back that they're not st supposed to go out yet. They're too soon. So they have to stop and sort of kill time in front of the crowd until it's time to go. Uh, and then the next week, they were put together as a team, and this was sort of a rib on them. Do you remember this pairing being like a rib, and that's how it blossomed? No, it was not a rib. Jesus Christ. Well, yeah. And, and to the guy that got on you about uh, about the damn polls, I'm sorry, I'm digressing here and sidebarring. Uh, when people think that, hey, folks, uh, the Facebook polls, the Twitter polls, all that stuff, it's not a work. 
It's actually lazy on our part because we want you to decide what the subject matter is. Conrad went ahead and did the extra work to do these anniversary shows coming up, but there's no reason to work a poll. We actually like to know what you have to say, and I don't know why you can't see how many votes or whatever, but no, we don't work the polls. Anyway, well, you can, going back you, to this. You can see the results at the end. I don't know how you got on this sidebar, but when we first moved the either. poll. I'll tell you how, because it's the same as, was it a rib on them to put them together? No, it wasn't a rib on them. Well, and it it's, was, um, it's not a rib that you actually call people when you pick up a shirt over at BruceBritchard.com, is it? Absolutely, and it's also not a rib that you and I are thinking about 2020 running. I can't believe this is a real thing, but there's actually a Pritchard Thompson 2020 T-shirt that's available right now at BruceBritchard.com. I mean, I guess stranger things have happened. Um, well, hey, dude, I used to be over. And you're over again now, man. And uh, if I wanted to hook you, you'd be hooked. Rib them, doot, doot, doot. Hey, pal, then the bell rang. George the Rat, everything you've been looking for is available at Friday Noon's main event, number one T-shirt site is BrucePritchard.com. And when you pick up a shirt, Bruce actually calls and personally thanks you. And uh, I don't know how many other people are doing that now, but I know who did it first. And you're going to love getting a call from Brother Love. Pick up a shirt right now. It's BrucePritchard.com. And by the way, this makes an excellent Christmas present for any wrestling uh, fan, friends you may have. Because here's what you can do to really make it a cool experience. Put their phone number in. When you pick up a shirt, actually put their phone number in, and when Bruce Pritchard gives them a call, if they answer, they get a surprise call from Bruce. If they don't answer, it might even be better. They get a voicemail from Brother Love himself. It's a cool deal. It's the best present you can give a wrestling fan. Pick it up right now, BrucePritchard.com. Let's talk about what's next, I guess, because we see the October 4th, 1997 edition of Shotgun Saturday Night. And the Outlaws are here, officially formed as a tag team. After another loss by Rockabilly, James comes out and asks him to dump Honky Tonk Man and team up with him. Rockabilly responds by smashing the guitar over Honky's head. Um, Chat me up. I I love Shotgun Saturday Night. I hope we cover more of this in the future. The initial idea of Shotgun Saturday Night was super fun. Is at this point, by October, the experiment with Honky Tonk done? Was he under a contract? Was he on a per-appearance deal? What are the plans with Honky at this point? There were no long-term plans. I know Vince was thinking about possibly doing something with him in a commentary role and some different things. But Honky knew when he came in that it wasn't a long-term deal and that he was simply being brought in to enhance Billy and see if he could get Billy to the next level. And I think that knowing Honky... The honky probably felt, my job's done here, baby. I got that guy over. Great Center Continental Champion of all time. Yeah, I, I, can't talk, wait, man. I can't wait for us to do a Honky Talk Man show. Chat me up about the guys here when they realize, hey, they're going to get a, an opportunity to team together. Is this something that they're looking forward to? Just anything to get rid of their current gimmick? They really enjoy working with each other. What details do you remember about these guys first being put together and the way that was talked about in the back with creative and how they specifically responded? Like kids in a toy store. Really? Um, Tickled to death. Excited. And, well, it was something new. And I think that both of them saw this as an opportunity to just go beyond what the hell they were doing then. And they also... And again, this is me outside looking in on them. I think that they knew that Sean had endorsed them, and Sean was a big proponent of these guys. 
And so Sean was helping him. So they, they not only knew that Vince was excited about it, but they're saying, Hey, Sean's excited about this and Sean's helping us. Sean's in our ear, giving us different stuff to do and helping us out on this deal. So that excitement added to the new gig. So one of the things that you guys did different with them, and I think this is lost on a lot of people, is very early on, you know, they don't have entrance music. Uh, they actually just start attacking other teams, and Road Dog would start talking on the mic as they made their way to the ring. Whose idea was that? Because it certainly makes them feel a lot different to not come out to theme music and talk the whole way to the ring. That combination is something nobody had ever seen before, much less individually. I think it was Road Dog's idea to do the promo on the way out. And I think it was Russo's thing to, okay, hey, you say you can talk, go do this. The, the, oh, you didn't know was something that he did. The, you ass better call somebody. That came from Ernie Ladd was, get on the phone and call somebody, buddy. Let him know the big cat Ernie Ladd is on his way to town. And that was kind of ripping that off. And we used to do that a lot, but it was different. It was unique to them, and it was something different that uh, nobody else was doing at the time. It's been said that uh, the whole, oh, you didn't know thing was actually something that was done just to sort of pop Brian Lee and try to make him laugh, and it just stuck. Uh, so it makes sense that what you're saying was really something you guys kind of said behind the scenes. And, and the reason that it stuck was because the audience was – just so in tune to what the hell we were doing during that time that the audience was engaged. And so as soon as you would hear, you know, cause you would hear later on that now, 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 now the audience, even before road dog started, they would do it. Oh, you didn't know. Well, and so as soon as they heard his voice before the music, they would do it with him. I don't even know that I knew this until we're talking about it, but I may have subconsciously been doing that the entire time with my, what happened when? Because it's this over-the-top enunciation that Road Dog was doing with, oh, you didn't know, that maybe that, I mean, who knows, right? So, um, uh, Well, you know. You know. Did you guys, uh, did, what was the original plan? You know, when you guys put them together, it feels like at this time, you know, and I think a lot of people get what, what I'm getting at here, a team that's packaged like Demolition or the Heart Foundation or the Rockers. So... You know, it's one team name, and then it's uh, similar outfits. You know, that whole deal is the kind of the way tag teams had been presented. And even during this era, you've got like 8-Ball and Skull and Crush and the Bariquas and the Truth Commission. You've got lots of people who are sort of dressed similarly. And, and, and now you've got two single stars, and you're putting them together, and they don't really have a name, uh, and, they, and they don't dress alike, and their style's not the same, and you're familiar with them as single stars. Normally, those pairings have a short shelf life. We're going to put them together just long enough to create a storyline and then break them up. That's not the way this turned out, though. Was that the original plan? Let's just pair them together long enough to have them feud again? The original plan simply was to be able to give a different look to the, to the whole tag team scene. These were two young guys. They were kind of cool. And they were kind of hip. They were different. And it wasn't that same old tag team um everybody look look exactly alike and we work exactly alike they each had their own identity and they were young and cool and hip and then it became again with with sean kind of in their corner you know where we eventually got to the whole dx thing and being a part of that but it was because 
of their, they were unique. They weren't from that same cloth of the traditional tag teams. And I think that's what made them stick out. It's worth mentioning too, you know, and I think a lot of people just assume because he's sort of behind the scenes, people assume that he's actually older. Um, but road dog is like a year and a half older than Chris Jericho. Um, he at the time he's 48. Now he at the time would have been 28 years old and Billy Gunn would have been 33. Uh, and I know, you know, time is a weird thing, but to hear that sort of plan and the pop and the reaction they're going to get, and they're in their late twenties and early thirties, it's a pretty rare deal in professional wrestling, but it worked. And, and it was something that, Hey man, they were ready for it. The audience was ready for something different. Um, <laughs> and it just, it just worked. It was a good pairing. Where does the, um, the name come from road dog and then badass. And then of course it would be Mr. Ass. Where does that come from? And, and who would have thought of the new age outlaws as a name? Well, road dog came from, uh, Brian being the roadie and it was just kind of just short on a hey, road dog, you know, that old Southern thing. You, you almost say, hey, what's up dog? And he became road dog. It just was something that stuck on. And Billy being badass, Billy Gunn, it was something to help that introduction kind of fit. So he became, uh, you know, badass Billy Gunn. And then eventually, <laughs> as as a joke, you know, they just referred to him as Mr. Ass. Because if his first name is bad, last name is ass, then if you were to address him properly, you would call him Mr. Ass. Oh, my gosh. I don't what? know. It's just awesome because as you say that, I think about our Macho Man episode where you were telling people that he would tell people to read his boots. And I just imagine. First name Macho, last name man. Uh-huh. Dig it. Freak out. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So Bruce is on vacation, and I can only hope that means he's putting some miles on that Peter meat. Thanks to Blue Chew. Let's talk about sex, boys and girls. Remember the days when you were always ready to go? Well, now you can be again thanks to Blue Chew. Blue Chew is a unique online service that delivers the same active ingredients as Viagra, Cialis, and Levitra, but in chillable form and at a fraction of the cost. Take these dudes anytime, day or night. So you can plan ahead or be ready whenever an opportunity arises. Roll Tide. And then the process is simple, y'all. You sign up at BlueChew.com. You consult with one of their licensed medical providers. And once you're approved, you'll receive your prescription within days. And here's the best part. It's all done online. That means no visits to the doctor's office, no awkward conversation, no waiting in line at the pharmacy. BlueChew's tablets are made in the USA, prepared and shipped directly to your door, all in a discreet package. BlueChew wants to help you have better sex. Discover your options at BlueChew.com. Chew it and do it. And boy, do we have a special deal for our listeners. Try BlueChew free when you use our promo code WRESTLE at checkout. Just pay $5 shipping. That's BlueChew.com. The promo code is WRESTLE and you'll receive your first month free. Visit BlueChew.com for more details and important safety information. And we thank BlueChew for sponsoring today's podcast. And Bruce's Ding Dong. Uh, Let's talk about the state of the business. Uh, This is pretty amazing when you think about how much wrestling has changed in under six months here. Uh, from the WWF's 95 to 96, this is drastic. Paid attendance goes from 3275 to 5486. The average gate is 44,000 to 80,000. The cable rating is actually down from 2.13 to 2.03, and buy rates are down, oddly, 0.95 to 0.79. Now, what does that mean money-wise? It means they go from an average pay-per-view gross 
of 2.66 million to 2.19. Uh, business is also on the upswing for WCW. But it's kind of interesting because prior to 96, uh, Meltzer had theorized that house shows were essentially lost leaders and they're in place to give guys work, keep your local syndicated stations happy, and then try to sell your merchandising and advertising locally. Uh, Meltzer wrote specifically, if a show made money, that was good, but the idea was almost to run shows not to lose too much money. The money would largely be made on the monthly pay-per-view show, which was declining rapidly, in an ancillary way, such as ad revenue, merchandise, magazines, 900 lines, etc. Can you speak to that? Do you think in the mid-90s, let's say 95, that some of the house shows were essentially lost leaders to get to the other revenue, and it was just something you felt like you had to do to promote your pay-per-views? Traditionally, we were always in the live event business. Right. And the television show was a commercial to get people out to the live events. As time wore on and pay-per-view became more popular, more prevalent, it became an advertisement to get people to go and buy the pay-per-view on a monthly basis because you were reaching more people. We never got out of the live event business. It, it became a loss leader, but that was not intentional. It, we continued to do it because there was a fear if you took yourself out of the marketplace that you would lose whatever footing you did have. So we continued to do uh, house shows, and it was always the intention to be in the live event business. That was always the business. I like, I like that you say that you know it was to build some pay-per-view because, oddly, even though every other metric is up, pay-per-view is down in 96. Um, but by, at this point in 96, both companies, WWF and WCW, are turning profits with their house shows. And remember, from the WCW side of things, they even talked about doing away with house shows completely. Uh, by this point, the WWF is running less than half as many shows in 96, though, as they were in 95 which really means fewer B-towns and more A-town shots. So you'd see some repeats of A-towns and almost no B-towns. And, Bruce, that kind of seems like a no-brainer to me. Why does it take until 96 for you guys to start saying, hey, let's just run fewer shows, forget the B-towns, let's just hit the A-towns more often? Did that feel like running less shows to Vince was like admitting defeat or backing up? It was economics. And when he realized that they could make more money off of one big show, you, we put more guys on it. We, we made them bigger shows. Right. Um, and put more guys on it to give more guys work. And all of a sudden, you started seeing, well, we're, we're making more money here. And in the, the big scheme of things, the, the overall plan was to get back to where we could run more than one event a night. Who's, who recognizes that opportunity to run fewer shows, but essentially bigger shows, and that will be more profitable? Is that something Vince recognizes, or is there a CFO, or is that just a creative decision that the financial people aren't even really privy to? No, it's it definitely stems from a financial um, a CFO, and at the time, I don't know if that was Doug Sage's or uh, it wasn't Augie. It may have still been Doug Sages at that point that brings that to Vince's attention that then brings it to our attention for us to look at and kind of restructure the way that we've been doing business. 
I know a lot of people are listening right now who are just fans of wrestling and don't care about the business side, and you're annoyed, but uh, too bad. Skip forward a little bit. I'm not doing. Uh, the business is on a rise here for the first time since it started to decline sometime in late 92, and this is a big deal here because Meltzer is going to report that Titan had made the decision to drop all the compensation from their syndication package come September. That's a pretty big deal. And let me break down what that means. I think most people listening are in the loop on this. They've been around forever. Um, and, and the WWF kind of coming to the market and buying out your TV out from under you is the narrative that a lot of the old-timey promoters would still say, this is what happened to me. But a lot of times, they did it to the guy before them, too. Vince just got the last laugh. Um, well, eventually, the cost of maintaining that syndicated network had become more than the income that they were getting from the national advertising side. So they made the decision to just stop paying for TV time. And that's kind of what happened to Bill Watts and Jim Crockett and how their expenses got out of hand. And it's likely why Smoky Mountain didn't grow much more than it did. And, of course, once upon a time, even ECW participated in this model. Bruce, do you have any interesting stories about these compensation deals you can share with us or just how this concept worked. Can you shed any light? Well, well, let me correct, let me correct that as well, because when Vince first started his expansion, Vince went out and bought television time in different markets. That was the way, if you go back even before that, a lot of times promoters would simply barter their time. They would get their television show on a local market uh, for free in exchange for seven minutes of commercial time. The, television station that they were on could sell advertising time and the promoter could keep seven minutes to promote their shows or sell advertising time or whatever they wanted to do. That was the general model until Vince went around and started buying television time. Well, that evolved when the ratings and the demand for WWF program became so great that they went from paying weekly compensation to stations that now they were asking stations no different than any other syndicated television program to pay us. So there were many, many years in there from about 1988, 89 uh, till roughly this time frame that the stations were paying WWE, not the other way around. Well, there were still there were still barter situations, but for the most part, they were paying the syndicated program like they would for Wheel of Fortune or other syndicated programs. So let me be clear: you're saying the WWF was not paying for TV time in '96. Majority, there were some places that they may have been, but the majority of the programs, the stations were paying us no different than any other syndicated show. There were markets where Vince that Vince wanted and wanted to keep times, and they may have paid for those. But overall, they had changed. They had changed the format to where we're going to be like, you know, kept using Wheel of Fortune and every other, you know, King World. If you want our programming, you're going to pay for our programming like you do everybody else. Then you get to this time frame, and this became the age of the infomercial, where you would have uh, Ron Popeil, who was the master of this. Well, and, and so that's, I'm glad you bring that up because that's what Meltzer's saying here is that now, you know, that those guys are coming in and they're offering way more money because they can sell a whole lot more Ronco, set it and forget it, turkey rotisserie machines yep. than, than you could wrestling tickets. 
Well, and and because they they had changed the whole format from paying us to now Ron Ron Popiel comes in and says, "Wait a minute, I'll take that hour of time and I'm going to pay you." So we went from paying to getting paid to now someone coming in and, and basically doing the same thing to us, going, "We'll buy the time and we'll pay you more. You'll make more. You guys are paying for that time. The hell with that. When your contract's up, I'll, I'll give you a thousand dollars an hour for that." And Ron Popeil was paying big money in big markets for a lot of those time slots and made billions. So Dave gives an example of how this compensation thing works, and he uses the San Francisco market uh, for his example. He talks about when the WWF came to buy TV in 84, they were spending $100,000 a year for a mid-level UHF station, Channel 20. And this is the station that the AWA had been occupying, but of course the AWA can't compete with that, so they're forced out. Eventually, the WWF gains enough popularity to move to Channel 2, which is the leading independent station on the West Coast for both both shows, Superstars and Challenge, and they were paying in the neighborhood of around $150,000 per year, plus 5% of the gross from the local house show, and that included closed circuits of WrestleMania, and that meant a lot of money back in the day. So as a result, they're drawing huge houses in Oakland, San Francisco, and cities like that. Eventually, the NWA gets an opportunity to snag the challenge spot, uh, and that hurts the WWF's drawing ability there while they have it, but it doesn't help the NWA enough to keep it. So when the WWF gets the spot back, business picks right back up. So the idea here is you're able to... Uh, sell more house show tickets and make more money there if you have the TV in that market. But you might not be able to run these major markets as profitably unless it's this kind of special once-a-year sort of deal. Do I have that right, Bruce? No. we there, there were deals and there were major markets where we did have a percentage with the television station. They were partners in our promotion to give us X number of ads throughout their programming and we would give them a percentage of the live events. So that is one thing that incentivized the television stations to take us. And again, it, we, we became an actual syndicated product um, that so, we were charging money for it. And it was easier. It was more attractive to them to, okay, we're paying. What, what else do we get if we can't sell advertising? We're going to make you a partner in the live event. You make our live events successful. You're going to get a piece of it. So I just said all that, and then you said no. So what was I wrong? Well, about? no, you, you were wrong about the you know paying the additional hundred and fifty thousand dollars or what have you. They may have earned one hundred and fifty thousand dollars throughout the year based on the percentages that they got from the live gates. And the I don't think I don't think we were paying that kind of money at that time. So let's talk about this. WCW was beating the WWF in syndication at this point. They were doing 6.49 million homes on 184 stations and compare that to the WWF's 3.92 million on 155 stations. I don't know why that shocked me considering WCW was a TV company, but it did. Were you guys internally trying to keep score with those syndication numbers at the time? Somewhat, but at the, at the same time, they had they had great deals because of who they were because they were Turner right so they were able to get their programming in a lot of places that we couldn't so yeah they 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 had a lot more clearance 
but Vince was more interested. Vince was more interested in being profitable than at that point because profitable is better. Well, and that's a weird thing too to talk about WCW kind of ruling syndication because once upon a time when it was Crockett, Crockett just relied on TBS and the Superstation and their dominance in cable. But the WWF was making their hay in syndication, and now that's kind of switched around a little bit. According to the Observer, the WWF felt like even after removing this compensation plan, they were still going to net more than 100 stations who would carry the show, but there was some concern internally that they would risk losing major markets like New York and L.A. How big of a concern was it when you guys did actually lose New York, Chicago, and Los Angeles? Was anybody panicking about losing those markets? Yes, because we had always been there and it wasn't, it wasn't panic. It was definitely concern. The Vince man drawing a line in the sand. It's by God, you're going to do this or we're, we're out of here. Um, and he would, you know, they would call his bluff and he would leave and go on. So it, it was, yeah, there was a lot of concern. And people were saying, well, let's, let's just focus on cable where we're reaching the company. I mean, the entire country and buy local spots. It would be the same. And Vince just felt, um, and there were people, Joe Perkins. Joe Perkins was a gentleman that sold the syndication and had been with Vince and his dad forever and a day. Joe just felt that you had to have syndication. You had to have local television wherever we went. And that was the way business was done. To show how much the business had changed from the heyday, I guess the late 80s, the biggest boom in the history up to that point, at that time, they were running nearly 1,000 house shows a year, and here in 96, they're going to run less than 175. Bruce, when do you remember noticing that the schedule had lightened up so much? Was there like an aha moment like, holy crap, we're not doing nearly what we used to? I would have to go back and look at my books, but yeah, it was an aha moment from... You've seen my booking books, big, large ledger books from drawing three lines in it to have place for three shows and the cards for three shows to drawing one line and having one show a night and just having all this, all this room at the bottom with nothing in it. (laughs) And I would fill it with, with different notes and things like that. But it was right about this time that we went from three shows to two shows so we're running a show. Hey, hey, it's Conrad Thompson here to tell you a little more about what adfreeshows.com is all about. Get early ad-free access to more than a dozen of your favorite wrestling podcasts every single week, starting at just nine bucks. That's less than 20 cents an episode each month. And yes, you can listen to them all directly through Apple podcasts or your regular podcast apps. How easy is that? Ad-Free Shows also has thousands of hours worth of bonus content and docu-series like Title Chase, Eric Fires Back, Conversations with Conrad, and The Insiders, plus new series like The Book with David Crockett, Monday Mailbags with Mike Kyoto and Nick Patrick, and a whole lot more. And you want to talk about early, you can't get any earlier than listening to the shows live. You can be a part of the live studio audience as we record the podcast. Plus, ride shotgun alongside your favorite childhood heroes for live watch-alongs, Q&As, and other interactive experiences every single month. Come on now, see for yourself what thousands of other wrestling fans from around the world have discovered. 
that adfreeshows.com is the best value in wrestling. Check it out today. And Hey, when you do the first week is completely free adfreeshows.com. John brings his skewed sense of humor. Jeff brings tips to cut strokes off your next round. Together, it's those weekend golf guys. They'll pay a lot of money to PXG and Titus and Callaway and on and on and on. Right? How many yards do you think you're going to pick up with that extra? I think I can get an extra 5 to 10. What if I give you 15 to 20? <laughs> you pay me more. Jeff Smith right? teaches on the sliding scale. <laughs> those weekend golf guys, the podcast, part of the Believe Network. Just search B-L-E-A-V on YouTube or wherever you listen.